hands down, the best part of being involved in the Theocyte Project was helping to put on these seminar events. There were three of them. And at these seminars, the speakers were all experts in psychological science, but the audience were groups of theologians. They were theology professors from institutions all over the world. Um, we probably had maybe eight different countries represented in our cohort. And not only did they come from different places geographically, but different places ideologically. They all had different areas of expertise, whether it be systematic theology or exegetical analytic theology or even biblical studies. And also they came from different Christian traditions. So the way that they interacted with the psychological science was very diverse. So it was really fun to see how these experts in theology would dive into the psychological material. And what you're about to hear is the way that Kristen McCurlin and Joshua Cockaine, how they, when first exposed to this material, were first processing how it might interact with their own research projects. So keep in mind that the way that they interact with psychology isn't going to be the same as some of our other cohort participants, but you'll have to listen to some of my other interviews to get some different perspectives. Now, I interviewed Josh and Krista together because they were great friends and I thought it would be fun to interview them together. Josh and Krista both met while doing PhD work at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where Josh is currently a lecturer. Krista, on the other hand, is now teaching at a university in New Zealand, a Baptist university in New Zealand. And she also runs an organization called Logia, which encourages women to get advanced degrees in theology to sort of encourage female scholarship in the area of theology. It's a really great conversation. I learned a lot and I love talking to these guys. So enjoy. My name is Sari Martin Concepcion, and I'm the Director of Communication at Blueprint 1543. This podcast is part of the Theopsych program hosted by Fuller's Star Office and Blueprint 1543. More at Blueprint1543.com. I'm here with Krista McGurlin and Joshua Kikane, who seem to be very good friends. Yes. Um, <laughs> so why don't we just start with, tell me what you do, what school you're with, what you do. Let's start with Krista. Great. So I'm actually finishing up a research fellowship at the University of St. Andrews and moving into a lectureship in theology at Cary Baptist College in Auckland. So we're in transition here in LA on our way there. And I love theology and love teaching that, and I'll be especially teaching undergrads and some postgraduate students. And then also another passion of mine is helping equip uh, women to pursue especially theology, but also biblical studies, philosophy of religion, uh, and to see those disciplines in conversation and women being a part of that interdisciplinary conversation. So I'm the executive director of Logia uh, that is based in St. Andrews, um, and then we're continuing to expand globally uh, as I move to the Southern Hemisphere. What are you, Josh? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a lecturer at the University of St. Andrews. I teach at the Logos Institute, which is an institute for analytic and exegetical theology. It's quite a mouthful. <laughs> um, basically, as an institute, we're trying to bring together expertise in philosophy, philosophical theology, systematic theology, and biblical theology, and trying to um, throw all of that into the mix mm -hmm. and have some kind of um, conversation that is well-informed by all those different disciplines. So mm -hmm. I mainly teach on the master's program um, in the Logos Institute. Um, having some involvement with PhD students as well. 
My other main area of um, interest is, um, so I'm training for ministry in the Anglican Church. And um, for me, I guess I'm just quite a pragmatic person. And I really want to see um, how theology can impact ministry. Um, so impact the kind of people that I'll be preaching to on a Sunday morning or people that I'll be sitting down with in a difficult pastoral situation. Mm. For me, that's really what the heart of theology is about. It's about communicating mm. um, ideas and the person of Jesus Christ to the everyday person. Do you hope to continue straddling both worlds, like the yeah. academic world and the church? So world? that's my hope. Yeah. But um, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of work at the moment. But. <laughs> it keeps you busy. Before we get more into like the seminar topics and your research and stuff, Maybe you could both just share a little bit about how you came to theology, how you came to identify as a theologian. Um, do you identify as theologian? <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming you do, but I don't want to make any assumptions. Yeah, I think I kind of backed my way into it, funny enough. Um, was raised Baptist, and I think going back even to my um, being a nine-year-old and starting to cultivate my own personal faith, uh, I'd grown up in a church. My dad's a, an associate pastor at a large uh, church in Atlanta, and I was reading this devotional, and it was about Jesus feeding the 5,000, and it got to the end of the, the story and talked about Jesus feeding 5,000 men, and it had a parenthesis, not including women and children. And so in my little nine-year-old scrawl in the margin, it says, but where are the women and children? That, that was, I was very concerned by the invisibility of that demographic. And this was before I was exposed to feminism and, you know, everything else uh, in undergrad. Uh, this was just a, a deep-seated concern of mine very early on. Um, and so faith was uh, an organizing principle for my life. Uh, I was there every time the doors opened and just really did have a thriving relationship with Jesus. And it was very much in a positive sense. Like it wasn't about not going to hell. That was mm -hmm. very common in my cultural mm -hmm. subtext. Um, but it was really about, I want a friendship with Jesus. Uh, and I see that in my parents. Um, I'm seeing thriving. I'm seeing flourishing in them. But then there was some baggage associated with formalized religion as I was seeing that. One, I was reading these stories where women were invisible, and then I would go to church, and I would also see the lack of women. Mm -hmm. um, so whether it was praying publicly or preaching or baptizing or serving communion or even as simple as passing an offering plate, I did not have visible role models of women. And so I began thinking at a pretty early age, well, if I can't influence the church from within, perhaps I need to influence it from without. Mm. And the professional thinkers who think on who God is and how God wants to relate to God's people, those people are called theologians. And so maybe I need to become a professor in theology and I could start impacting minds in the classroom that will then go back into their ecclesial contexts and maybe be change makers in that world. So I just assumed that it was kind of a you know, you can't do this in this Baptist context. And then, lo and behold, found out there's a lot of other ways of being Baptist. <laughs> and one of the reasons I'm very excited um, about being at Cary is because they're trying to be Baptist in a way that encourages the priesthood of all believers, uh, in a way that I really haven't gotten to see in an American context. I was fortunate in the UK to also be exposed to that um, at the church I attended there. Uh, and was super encouraged um, to pursue theology mm -hmm. at the Logos Institute with Alan as my supervisor, Alan Torrance. And so 
Yes, I, I really did back into it. Uh, and it was, I think also to Josh's point, pragmatically, I saw it as a way to meet a felt need. Scripture seemed to teach that women could preach and to teach. First ones, the tomb, many other points of major influence in the mm-hmm. early church. Um, but I just didn't see that lived. And so I wanted to, to be a part of changing that from a robust convictional core. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. Yeah, I don't have an answer anywhere near as profound as that. <laughs> I should have done you first. In fact, <laughs> I... I'm going to edit that for some post. <laughs> no, it's fine. I, mean, I, I guess uh, in some ways I feel a bit like an accidental theologian. Uh-huh. I mean, I, so I went to um, university to study philosophy and did a philosophy degree. And then I did a master's in um, philosophy, theology and ethics and then ended up um, doing my PhD in a philosophy department on Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this movement that's been going on in, in philosophy for the past 10, 20 years of philosophers of religion starting to pay attention to um, issues of theological importance. Mm-hmm. And so um, using their philosophical training to think about um, issues related to doctrine and theology and practice. Um, and then in, I guess, about 10 years ago, Oliver Crisp, and from who was at Fuller, who's now at St Andrews, um, and Michael Ray from the University of Notre Dame, decided that um, actually this conversation would be much better if it was a joined-up conversation within theology. So this was the birth of the so-called analytic theology, sure. which is now what I, I teach. But my, my primary training has been in philosophy, but most of my research has focused on issues of theological importance. Mm-hmm. I guess there's a lesson from that in some ways, which is that I think sometimes we make being a theologian about how educated you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure, I mean, there, there are things about formal education which are important, but I think really the heart of what theology is, it's kind of what Krista was articulating, is, is to reflect on who God is. And I think we're all theologians in, in some regard, right? Mm-hmm. And so because my training was primarily in philosophy, it doesn't exclude me from thinking about God. And in fact, actually, I approach the task of theology very differently to a lot of my colleagues, because of where I'm coming from. I reject the idea that anyone can be an accidental theologian. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> Just because I really feel like an anomaly sometimes with how much I think. Maybe it's yeah. more to do with how much you think about theology rather right. than if you do or not, you know, but... But also, just to put a cap on what you're saying, you clearly also have some pastoral concerns because yeah. of your, your vocational right. ministry. So is there a particular part of vocational ministry that is feels like a calling for you or something you really want to help the church see and do? Or? Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the key thing I want to help the church do is to, to make worship as accessible as possible. So I, what, really, what really brings me alive is seeing people that have never been in church before or felt like church was not accessible to them connect with church in a new kind of way so in the UK in the Anglican tradition there's a movement called the Fresh Expressions movement Hmm. which I don't know if it's um, made its way over to the US but it's basically about finding new ways to to do worship Mm-hmm. And so there's things like Catholic Church. And you're church using and, that term in the proper sense, like the worship service. Yeah, the worship service, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So things like Cafe Church and Pub Church. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen those be really effective ways of drawing people into mm-hmm. the community of the church. And mm-hmm. for me, that's what I'm really passionate about, is seeing the marginalised mm-hmm. and people that think that they have nothing to offer. Seeing them come in and to uncover what a life of faith can mm-hmm. be about. It's very practical. 
yeah. and embodied, yeah. <laughs> which is like kind of the opposite of how I think about analytic theology. Mm. <laughs> what I do, which I know you're trying to work on it. Yeah, that's the thing. That I, just really quickly on that, because yeah. I do think analytic theologians get a really bad rap. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just these this pure propositional content, even written in formal logic. Yeah. And, like, to me, I mean, I, I just did this doctorate in analytic theology, and <laughs> I'm still, I still, I think that good theology will lead you to worship. Yeah. And and for some people, honestly, that that, that formal logic, it, it sings to their souls. Mm-hmm. It actually doesn't sing to mine. Um, yeah. There's other ways of doing analytic yeah. theology. Mm-hmm. But what I loved is that the best thing I think I, I came away from uh, this tradition was or a tradition that's 10 years old. So this way of, of thinking is, is really that every question is on the table, mm-hmm. um, that there's no question to be feared, um, but we need to be thinking about our presuppositions and asking why and how. Mm-hmm. Um, and that how question, I know this is going to come up more as we talk about this seminar. Mm-hmm. This is what I think the sciences can especially bring into the theological conversation. So I think analytic theology is primed to be a great dialogue partner with the social, behavioral, empirical sciences. Because uh, we're asking a lot of the those questions but haven't filled in the how yet. Yeah. And that's where I think we can have the dialogue. Yeah. So let's get into that. Why did you apply for a theopsych seminar? And a related question, maybe the same question, is um, was there a moment in your theological study where you said, hmm, feel like I need science here or have you always had an interest in mm-hmm. the sciences or how did that sort of start yeah so personally the mm-hmm. sciences scare me <laughs> I mean I was always very intimidating yeah I was always bad at them mm-hmm. um in school they were not my cup of tea uh, to use a Britishism but it was interesting doing my my doctoral dissertation on this idea of fundamental need which I was pulling in from philosophy and then testing this concept through biblical studies literature and kind of a biblical theology of what fundamental need might be. And as I finished out that project, the thing I kept coming back to from reading across scripture and and engaging with biblical scholars who were looking at much more specific texts and genres uh, was this idea of intentional, and we could define that in certain ways, but being in a relationship, a second personal relationship with God, that that seems to be something that runs throughout from Genesis to Revelation, that human creatures are meant to have kind of a unique relationship with God. We're the only creatures covenanted with, we're the only creatures called in the image of God, we're the only creatures of whom, of our kind, there became an incarnation, as far as we can tell Mm -hmm. uh, from what the text describes. But when I finished that dissertation, my next question was, I find this theologically compelling, but does it bear out in the natural world? Mm-hmm. Does this map on to reality? And how would I actually measure that? Mm-hmm. And then I immediately felt my, my limitations, which I already felt in my dissertation. Mm-hmm. I mean, trying to look across the Bible <laughs> to see if there was a con, you know, consistent human need that, that rose to the surface. That was already daunting enough. But then when I actually came to some conclusions on that related to this kind of relation we were called into as human persons, then I wanted to know, well, this has to be verifiable in some way. It has to track reality in some way. So could the social, behavioral, and I don't even know all the adjectives to put in front of the sciences because I'm that Mm -hmm. novice at what all the different (laughs) kinds of sciences there are. But that became my question is, 
can this be verified? Mm-hmm. Um, and not that it's going to give us a complete picture. I'm not going to move full natural law theory where you can just reason up to the great chain of being and reason up to the divine um, from just the natural world. A bit more pronounced of a pneumatology for that. But I do think the natural sciences have a ton to teach us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's the questions we ask. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to come here was I wanted to find out what are the best questions to ask and then who are the best voices to listen to? Because there are so many voices and I'm just not an expert uh, to even know how to filter through that material. So that's what drew me here. Yeah, I guess I've had a bit more interaction with some of the psychological sciences in my own work than maybe Krista has. But for me, the, the thing that first excited me about this dialogue was um, reading a book by Eleanor Stump, Wandering in Darkness, which is, a, I think, a masterful piece of um, theology and philosophy where she is attempting to, to consider what the human response to the problem of suffering might be. And in the first few chapters of that book, Stump is trying to consider what it means to know another person, what it means to relate to God. I mean, when I read it, I thought I'd never read anything like this. This is philosophy of religion that's drawing from the riches of um, developmental psychology to explain what it means to know somebody personally. And for me, that was just just expanded my, um, my vision of what's possible within philosophy of religion, and analytic theology. And so for, for really that, Stump's, Stump's work has been a, a model for me of what's possible in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think that the thing that's so great about psychology, I mean, some, a, re, a repeated theme that's come up from this seminar is that psychology attempts to explain things that seem obvious, already seem intuitive and obvious to mm-hmm. us. <laughs> and I think that's really important for theology because we do need the resources to be able to specify things that are intuitive and to to think about how the mind works and for our theology to be in conversation with those things which are obvious and intuitive. So a lesson that I took from Stump's work and something I've developed in my own work in more detail um, is that there's a difference between knowing a person and knowing about a person. So if I know about Krista, I might have read her Wikipedia page. I don't know if you have a Wikipedia page. I surely hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever's listening to this should go and make Krista a Wikipedia page. Um, but I could, learn, I could learn everything there is to know about Krista. Mm-hmm. But it seems obvious to us that I wouldn't know, know Krista. Right. And that seems like a really obvious thing. And that's something that psychologists and philosophers of mind have thought quite a lot about and given some some explanation for what the difference between these two modes of knowing is. But it seems like right. often... Even if you had someone who had ever, since the day they were born, someone had been following them yeah, around, right. writing down everything, right. and you read it all, yeah, so, you I mean, still wouldn't know that person. So like Stump's yeah. um, example she uses, which she borrows mm-hmm. from, she adapts a thought experiment from a, a philosopher called Her, um, Harry Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. She says, suppose that Mary has been brought up in a room in which she's only ever had access to facts about her mother. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows everything it's possible to be known that can be written in propositional form. Mm-hmm. When she leaves the room for the first time and meets her mother, mm-hmm. what does she come to know? <laughs> and yeah. uh, I mean, it's a good question. It sounds obvious, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is that I think theology often mm-hmm. kind of conflates this knowing about God mm-hmm. and knowing God. Mm-hmm. Like we often think that um, if we just get our doctrine right, mm-hmm. if we just understand all the things there is to know about the nature of God, mm-hmm. um, then we've got it sorted. <laughs> Seeing that and and trying to think about that in my own work in more detail was really like the start of my thinking cool. about psychology, which is one of the reasons I wanted to come here was um, 
to find out if I've been doing it right. (laughs) (laughs) Jumping back to your project real quick, Krista, and talking about need, can you flesh that out a little bit in terms of need so that you don't die? (laughs) Great question. Yeah, yeah. How do you need? So I'm wanting to look at, um, are there any unique needs to Mm -hmm. the kind human? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And kind can be loosely determined there as well, Mm -hmm. as we've been learning in the course of the seminar. Comparing me to this chair, for instance, Mm -hmm. we actually both have the same need when it comes to existing. Neither of us, uh, it and myself, <laughs> necessarily exist. Uh, we're, we're contingent, we're created, and me and the plant, me and you, all of us, we, we have a foundational need in that sense, it's more existential, I suppose, um, to just exist. And I would actually term that something of its own category. That's God's grace, that all is gift, to exist is gift. Mm-hmm. But once that existence in motion is in motion, there are needs that then flow from being the kind of creature that one is. So the plant needs nutrients. It has to have inputs in order to grow. And so do I. I I also need these inputs in order to grow. Um, Me, being unlike the plant, I think I need certain interpersonal relationships. Uh, We can talk about that at the human level, which we've been talking about a lot with developmental psychology these last couple of weeks. Um, But I also want to go beyond that into the supernatural if that's how we want to think about the Mm -hmm. divine, or maybe that's just the apex Mm -hmm. of the natural. Mm -hmm. Um, But that God desires relationship. And again, how we want to define desires, depending on our views of impassibility. Um, But that God, according to the text, wants every person to have a relationship with Mm -hmm. God's self. And so kind of based on that, thinking through, can we formalize that in language of need? And something that, again, is distinctive about me over and against the plant, not that the plant can't relate to God, mm-hmm. but it's going to relate to God in its maximal plantishness mm-hmm. capacities. But I've got different capacities. And whether or not those evolved over a long period mm-hmm. of time, yeah. whether or not that was something created immediately, either way, that's something about me that I would say as a human mm-hmm. colors how my, I want to say, personhood develops. So we've got things like Textually, angels mm-hmm. um, and other things that maybe have personhood in the sense of being able to relate uh, mm-hmm. even second personally in the ways that Josh was talking about being mm-hmm. aware, uh, knowing someone, not just knowing about someone. Maybe that's possible for my dog. I don't know. I really mm-hmm. can't get into my dog's mind. But I, I want to say that for humans, we have, and again, these last two weeks have made it abundantly clear, we have a unique architecture. Mm-hmm. physiologically, psychologically, neurologically, in order to form complex social relationships. Mm-hmm. And I don't think those social relationships are confined just to the seen, but that they can also extend into the unseen. Mm-hmm. And so this language of need, the reason I use something that severe, because mm-hmm. need, the features of need in the philosophical literature that I'm looking at specifically uh, from a philosopher named Garrett Thompson it has to meet a very high bar to be a fundamental need. So it has to be non-derivative, so it's not instrumental at all. It's at its basic level. You require that for your flourishing. Uh, it's non-circumstantial, so no matter what environment I am, I'm in, as a human being, I need that thing to flourish. And then it's inescapable. So no matter my stage of development, I need that relationship in order to thrive. Now, how I'm able to relate, that develops Mm -hmm. over time. And this is another appeal to me of this view, as you can continue to develop, 
even in the next life. So it doesn't have to be this stagnant meeting of a need that then is sated, Mm -hmm. which is often how we understand desires. So desires you often know, you feel, they're embodied cognitive states in some way. Uh, But once the desire is sated, the desire goes away. Need is not like that. So it actually has more of a a salience to it, more of a permanence to it, so that even as the need is being met, it persists. So even as I'm drinking the water, which I need, I still need the desire. So Mm. I still need the water. Mm -hmm. So you can have need without lack. Mm -hmm. And so kind of the big elevator pitch for my thesis was we are creatures who had these needs, but that need was meant to be in a context of abundance, but now we are creatures with these needs in a context of lack. Mm -hmm. And so life, life in the fullest Mm -hmm. that we see embodied in Christ, that he then offers to us and that is expanded eschatologically, I see as just operating in a fullness that is ever increasing. Mm -hmm. Does this research project, does it correct something that you see in the church or in Christianity at large or maybe just support something or, um, but assuming you're right and your instincts are right and the science backs it up and all that kind of stuff. Do you you see a touch blank there? Yeah. So I think there's a few kind of theological cash outs, if you will, if this is, if this is accurate. One, if it's need without lack, then we could start talking about what it means to have an ongoing need for something that doesn't impugn our completion. Mm-hmm. So we could talk about Jesus mm-hmm. entering into this need and mm-hmm. sharing in common this need. So we now have a point of continuity mm-hmm. between Jesus' humanity and ours, which is especially important for anthropology, yes. especially if it's a Christological one. Now we have more language to talk about So how did Jesus enter into this need? And then how might we imitate him experiencing that need Mm. Um, without it saying that he was imperfect because need is no longer about imperfection and about deficiency. Now it's about actually just being a creature and a Mm. creature of a certain sort. So I think that's super helpful. Um, Another feature that I really like about this concept is instead of degreeing humanness, which gets us into some major ethical issues, we now can degree flourishing. Mm -hmm. So no matter someone's developmental state, no matter their disability or ability, no matter whether they believe in God or not, they're fully human. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not on the table. But Mm -hmm. there might be some ultimate aims of flourishing that aren't being experienced yet. And I would say even, depending on your doctrine of sin, that's going to be the case for someone who has all fully functioning capacities and who has a vibrant relationship with Christ, I still think there's more to that person's flourishing that I think will have to be realized eschatologically. So it's very progressive in that sense um, Mm -hmm. and and dynamic, and that's another piece from this seminar that's been quite helpful, is it seems to be comporting more with what we're learning about human development, is that we're just not static creatures. And it comports with vocation, all these Mm -hmm. elements that are teleologically oriented, but not something that, well, you've got a need, you meet it, we're done. Speaking of human development, Josh, I feel like you had a, you have a baby Jesus project, research project on the table, <laughs> but maybe among others. So talk yeah, about yeah. all of them or whichever one you want to talk about. Yeah, well, one of the things... <laughs> but I do like saying baby Jesus project. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the things that I came here to, um, to think a bit more about, I mean, I've had so many ideas here. That <laughs> yeah. I, could talk, I could talk about lots of things. Yeah. But one of the things that um, I thought might be worth thinking through is about um, how the human mind of Christ might have developed. I mean, it says in, I think it's uh, Luke's Gospel, mm-hmm. that Christ grew 
in wisdom and years. And it, I mean, it says in uh, Hebrews that uh, Christ learned obedience through suffering. Mm. So you see, there, there's certainly an emphasis in place in the scripture that Christ as a human being developed. And I think that's a really fascinating Scary. thing to think through. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it can be frightening yeah. for people who uh, don't haven't really spent a lot of time reflecting on Jesus' humanity yeah. and the implications of that, because that sometimes feels like it does damage to or infringes upon his divinity in right. some way. I mean, and if Maybe because we have a low view of what it means to be human, you know, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, if you spend time with yeah. a newborn baby, which you soon will. I'm going to soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, they can't do very much no. <laughs> at the beginning, right? Like, they are... It takes them a while to be able to even... Um, to understand the world, to mm-hmm. understand... To even gain a kind of sense of self. And right. a lot of... De- and developmental psychologists tell us that babies learn through their engagement with other, other people. So through sharing attention with their mm-hmm. caregivers, they come to understand themselves and they come to understand how they relate to their environments and how they relate to other people. And so I guess the question I had coming into this seminar was, what does that do for our understanding of the nature of Christ? Did the human being, Jesus Christ, have to learn of his divinity through the same kind of developmental mm. process that mm-hmm. we might go through to, to um, understand our environment? We went to the, um, the art museum in Pasadena, mm-hmm. and there's this, uh, me and Krista, not, not very refined art critics, <laughs> were going around... Um, Maybe laughing is the wrong word. We, so th- there's a lot of pictures of um, kind of um, a very divine baby Jesus. So there was one where he was like stood up. It, I mean, he could look like he was six months. He was stood up, pointing with this big halo around his head. And so th- th- there's certain ways of thinking about like the divinity of Christ that just seem very strange yeah. developmentally. Like what would it mean physiologically, his brain would not even have been capable of having that kind of self-awareness. No, yeah. And so what does it mean for him to be um, a divine person, a human person, if the human side of him was um, not even capable of getting that kind of self-awareness? So that, I mean, that's one of the questions I was interested in, mm-hmm. in thinking more about. I know. Thinking about this stuff has totally ruined some of the Christmas songs for me. It was so <laughs> sentimentalizing. Yeah. Like, what, he didn't cry? Yeah. Come on. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, and it's interesting also to think about how the emphasis in the seminar has been so much on sociality and how social creatures we are. And here Jesus is, the divine human, developing in an environment just wrought with sin, right? Like we all are, (laughs) you know, developing in relationship to sinful beings and sinful systems of, you know, brokenness and what kind of implications that that has, too, is really interesting. In terms of the seminar lectures over the past 10 days or whatever, any points of learning from the psychological sciences that especially stand out to you that are, are things you really want to pursue? Um, yeah, I mean, already brought up a couple yeah I mean, one of, the, one of my main areas of research at the moment is on the nature of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to find ways of thinking about the church we need to affirm that the church is a one one united body in Christ. Good luck. <laughs> but I mean, we, and it, if we look at the outward forms of the church, it doesn't seem that way, right? right, right. But um, theologically, it's important to stress that the, the church is one. Mm. Um, and the church is one through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's 
but it is the body of Christ. That's what the language that Paul uses. Yeah. And there's been some really helpful ways of thinking about that in this seminar. So, totally. So um, Brad Strawn was, gave us a really fascinating lecture on extended cognition. So um, the idea is basically that um, we extend our minds. We, I mean, there's this kind of like restricted way of thinking about our minds, which is like that kind of closed, like we are kind of, lord of our own thoughts and very restricted but then the more you reflect on it the more you think actually um, the mind is not quite as bounded as we think so it's easy to think that there's an emergent quality that happens when minds all come together and are operating i mean i know i have the experience sometimes like probably more or less for different people depending on their how extroverted they are or their their empathy or whatever but even just saying a sentence or an idea out loud to someone else, yeah. you start to think differently about it, right. even before they've yeah. said anything, which is a really interesting phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I guess the, the question I have is, if it's possible that like our minds are extended into other individuals or into a group of individuals, does that give us helpful ways of thinking about what it means for the church to be a part of Christ? Mm-hmm. to be the body of Christ? Mm-hmm. Um, is the church the extended mind of Christ in some way? Mm-hmm. Is there anything worth exploring in, in this um, conversation between extended cognition and mm-hmm. ecclesiology? So, I mean, that's something that I want to think more about, yeah. but that really struck me from, from the, the seminar this week. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea that you could, yeah, take some of the psychological ideas about what human minds do when they come together in social groups and have it bring new life to how we could incarnate Christ right. in the world now and live out what the kingdom is yeah. supposed to be like. What are you, Krista? Gosh, so many things from this. Mm-hmm. Um, the relational capacities. I've, I've not been able to put language yet until mm-hmm. coming to this conference to think through how um, my understanding of Imago Day and theological anthropology, and more specifically Christological theological anthropology, um, would be compatible uh with evolutionary theory um i just haven't addressed that uh in my own mind until coming here and having more language and resources to work on that and so that's been really helpful for me and actually um thinking through the difference between humanness and personhood and then where they they need to be linked and where they come apart um and psychology gives really helpful tools for that Mm -hmm. also one really important feature for me and this is going to be a probably an unfortunate gloss, maybe an unfortunate is not the word, but too generalizable. But it seems to me that one of the reasons theology and psychology are just such beneficial dialogue partners is theology, I do think, is meant to speak teleologically and where we are headed. And psychology can help talk through mechanisms and means for how we get there. Um, Again, not meaning that that uh, divorces kind of the means and mechanisms from the spirit, that's going to be harder to measure, mm-hmm, sure. <laughs> admittedly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is a much more fine-grained way of talking about what it means to be human, what it means to thrive, using the tools of psychology. But as our psychologists have talked about here, it's really not their area of expertise to talk about these meta questions about normative, prescriptive, mm-hmm. yeah, this is the ultimate end. Um, and that's mm-hmm. really, I do think, where theology can come in, not trying to be a totalizing discourse and come in with a hammer, but to say, hey, here's what the text seems to be saying or the tradition, depending on where you're coming from. And the sciences and these specific strands and models, they help comport with that. 
and then also being honest, I think, as a theologian, where the sciences maybe undermine or challenge the ways we've thought theologically. And I think coming back to pragmatism, that's been a through line here. Um, if our theology finds no bearing in reality, <laughs> that should cause us some alarm. I agree. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's the biggest thing yeah. I'm taking away from this. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Maybe you could talk, either of you can comment on how uh, you see theology and the sciences both as truth-seeking domains, but how they work together. I mean, I think one of the key differences, I mean, this is the same of any interdisciplinary engagement, right? We yeah. find this at the Logos Institute all the time. Yeah. Every discipline has its own methodology, yeah. its own jargon and language, and its own ways of measuring truth, yeah. and how effective it's been at capturing truth. <laughs> and I find often where there's disagreements mm -hmm. between different disciplines, mm -hmm. um, it's often because they haven't understood where one another is coming from methodologically. And I, I think actually a lot of the science and religion stuff can be, some of the disagreements can be quite superficial mm -hmm. because they're not actually disagreeing. Um, they're just asking quite different questions mm -hmm. and quite different frameworks using completely different methodologies. <laughs> And then saying, look, we've come to different, we've come to different answers about these questions. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, of course you have, because you're doing something so different from yeah. one another. And that's one of the things I've really appreciated about the conversation this week. Mm -hmm. We've been able to take it slow mm -hmm. and to get to the bottom of what are the, um, the underlying things that are going on in this conversation. Like, mm -hmm. why, why would you ask that question and not this question? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of thing that goes on all the time when you have these interdisciplinary conversations. Mm -hmm. But I think the reality is that well, science and theology don't have to be competing method methods of truth. They're using very different methodologies to discover ultimate truth. Mm -hmm. do, you have, do you have anything, any further reflections on that, yeah. Krista? I mean, like, I was even thinking the different questions. Like, I'm often asking, what does it mean to be human? And, of course, my... My source of authority I'm always going to in that is is scripture and, and the tradition. I feel like psychology is, is often asking, well, then how are right. we human? Uh, how did those capacities evolve? Uh, how is this related to systems and interpersonal dynamics? And that's why I think it's so rich <laughs> yeah. is because we are asking different questions, but it's yeah. almost like it's different pieces of the puzzle. And if we could realize we were coming to the table to try to fill out that puzzle together, I just think it could be so rich and fruitful, but it is going to be challenging and uncomfortable. And so I think that yeah. the precondition for a conversation like this that's also been modeled so well is the humility of these experts, uh, the psychologists who've come in and, and admittedly said, hey, I'm going to I'm going to dance on your turf. <laughs> um, can you dance with me? And so I think there has to be that kind of humility and vulnerability to do this well. Mm -hmm. and, and we've really seen that. And I'll lead for a while, and then you can lead for a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, I think because it's getting hot in this room, we'll end there. And it's That's great. Awesome. Thank you for your time, guys. Of course. Yeah, Thanks. Yeah, you guys are awesome.